This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, I've, I've been coming to this conference for a long time, and I was delighted to be asked to speak. Um, the last time I, I spoke in this room at a CME conference, I was between the audience and lunch, and that was not a good place to be. Now I've just got you all kind of postprandial and loopy, so we've got to pick up the energy here a little bit. Um, just the, the good news that, that Lucy alluded to, our division's been resurrected. We actually have four faculty members who are MDs and more than a half a dozen um, psychologists who work for different divisions and and, and helping kiddos out um, at UCSF with their developmental needs. Um, we've connected to uh, Children's in Oakland. We're one institution now. We're in the process of making that uh, stronger. Uh, we're still in our infancy, but I'm hoping we'll have a bigger presence for, for everybody's benefit, not just our own. So let me dive in here. I have nothing to disclose. Uh, quick overview, there have been several reports in the media of injuries and deaths related to treatments of children with neurodevelopmental disabilities. Uh, we're going to review which type of therapies have been associated with this morbidity, but more importantly, uh, hopefully I can help outline and, and, and um, get everybody to think about a way to approach uh, patients and families to help them make good, safe decisions for themselves and their kiddos. The objectives, uh, really, I'm going to try to take a health education approach, um, kind of an adult uh, learning approach. As, as everybody knows here who's a clinician, you're really often teaching the parents um, uh, who really, you know, are, are, are making the bulk of the decisions. Um, we'll look at some specific treatments that are, uh, I have a top five list of, of bad things to, to not do to, to children with disabilities. Um, and we'll talk about how a process increasing communication and collaboration uh, really can prevent this uh, and help families think through their choices with their brains and their hearts, <laughs> not just the, the, the desperate um, measures that Lucy alluded to. Um, and then, you know, I think really important uh, is to be humble. Uh, allopathy or traditional... Uh, uh, Western medicine hasn't always led to the safest treatments for children and uh, adults with um, disabilities and special health care needs, and we have to acknowledge that, that you know, we're going to throw some stones. We better realize we live in a little bit of a glass house ourselves. Okay, so why parents choose dangerous cures? Um, I'm going to use autism as the model here, but uh, in general, um, any condition that's considered severe and lifelong uh, without a great prognosis um, is susceptible to this. Uh, parents, especially those who are new to the diagnosis, often lack the knowledge about uh, the disorder, uh, may or may not have any scientific training. Um, and here's, here's the catch-all in our day of, of media flurry and, you know, microcomputers in our pockets or our hands right now as you drift off. Uh, parents are constantly dealing with conflicting information and competing perspectives, okay? Even if you have a well-orchestrated team, you know, working uh, for, for a, a child's benefit, 
everybody's got a different perspective. And someone's going to say, well, I tried this, or my last patient tried this, or my neighbor did this. And it's really hard um, for parents and families to balance that out uh, when they so desperately want to help their, their child. Um, and so another thing is, you know, we're a fad culture, okay? Um, fads are presented as quick fixes. Who doesn't like a good quick fix, right? I don't want to have to go to the gym. Just give me a pill that gives me, makes me ripped, makes me look like that guy on the, on the YouTube video. Is there a pill for that? No, he actually goes to the gym a lot. He doesn't tell you that, though. Um, there's inadequate information about what the causes of autism are. And that's because we don't know. <laughs> the science is still not entirely clear. And when the science isn't entirely clear, you are right for what I'm going to talk about a little bit later, which we call pseudoscience. Um, and so I, I would love to be able to hide behind tombs and tombs and tombs of great evidence telling us this causes this and the uh, different autisms are caused along these lines of inquiry, but that's still being fleshed out. And so that's ripe for a situation in which people can come in and say they've got the latest, greatest cure. And then lastly, uh, and, and most unfortunately, is medications can only alleviate certain symptoms right now. They're not cures. And I know this, you know, having you know, treated patients for over 10 years now in my clinic at the General and at UCSF, um, most of, most of the stuff that we write prescriptions for are Band-Aids. And um, pills don't teach skills. I say this 20 times a day. My patients get sick of hearing it. Um, and uh, it's, it's, the, uh, it's the underlying cause and the need for actual functional improvement that patients really want. All right, time to blame the media. Who likes the media these days? They're making us feel so well-informed and calm about COVID-19. I love the media. Um, so the media often shows preferential coverage to things that are breakthroughs or miracles, right? Front page, right? The miracle or the breakthrough makes a front page. The boring third study that showed this vaccine was safe or this, you know, dietary supplement was safe, that doesn't make front page. It's blood and gore or miracle that makes front page. Um, the media also uses strident uh, denunciation of all previous treatments um, to, to make their point, right? It's, we're in a call-out culture. It's zero-sum, right? There's no gray, okay? In order for me to prove to you that what I'm selling is the best thing, I got to say everything else sucks, okay? And very few fields have ever really advanced that way. Right? There's incremental change, sadly. It's boring. Right? Science is boring. Okay? It's making mistakes and learning from those mistakes and making, just a, making things just a little bit better. And every once in a while, there is a true breakthrough, and that's awesome. That's fantastic. Okay? And that's because people do take risks, and, and it's important to take risks you know, when there are safeguards. Okay? But that doesn't sell advertising space. Um, and, and, and most, most even really good scientific journalists, you know, they've got a word count uh, limit. They can't explain the excruciating methodological details and flaws of a study. They just got to tell you, this causes this. Take this. They got to make it simple. Okay. And the devil is in the details, unfortunately. Oh, and let's not forget about Jenny McCarthy. Everybody remember that slide from... Um, 
from Dr. Philistine yesterday. Uh, the, it was a great slide of all the sort of popular media displays of autism and autism treatments or, you know, for people with communication challenges. Um, celebrities can hijack attention over science using a very powerful anecdotal or human face approach. And, and for, um, for leveraging political um, movement, you know, and getting policy change, it's important to put a face to your, to your disease and tell a story. Um, but, but let's not confuse that with science. So here's pseudoscience. Um, defined in the Webster's Dictionary, it's a collection of beliefs or practices mistakenly regarded, excuse me, as being, you warned me about that, as being uh, based on a scientific method. Um, the American Psychological Association uh, defines pseudoscience as a system of theories and methods that has some resemblance to a genuine science, but that cannot be considered such. Examples include astrology, numerology, and esoteric magic. Um, that's an extreme. And, and, and several of the different treatments that I might mention as being potentially or actually dangerous do base themselves in some scientific reasoning and some scientific evidence. But it's really important to help patients understand that somebody on a website can hijack the language of science really easily. Okay? And peer-reviewed articles and things that are actually published and you know, things you can hold in your hand um, tend to carry a little bit more weight. Uh, so how does uh, pseudoscience work? Um, the jargon in, is used and the concepts are similar and there's research, um, but the, they don't fulfill the full burden of proof with controlled trials and repeatability. So you'll see trials of five or six, okay? and a lot, a lot of anecdotal evidence and testimonials, okay? It's really powerful, okay? There's something deep-seated in our psychology when we want to believe that something's going to help our child and we see somebody else or we hear somebody else saying, this is going to help your child, okay? And they give you, you know, a face, okay? Pseudoscience can move towards science with increased rigorous study or towards what we like to call snake oil, <laughs> something that just simply doesn't work and could be dangerous. And things that just don't work that aren't dangerous still have deleterious effects. They cost money. They cost time. They cost effort. I, I counsel patients on this daily. What's the blood, sweat, and tears factor aside from the pocketbook factor? How much effort are you going to have to put in to get him to those sessions every day of the summer that are gonna cost you $10,000 if we're not sure that that's gonna make a difference for him. It might, but there's a sacrifice. And so for the reasoning behind some of these um, dangerous or deadly cures, the abnormal physiology theories of ASD uh, feed in here and there are a few, um, and I'm not going to go into detail on them, but just to, to list them so we can see sort of where some of the, these therapies uh, go awry. Uh, the belief that oxidative stress causes autism, that inflammation and immune dysfunction causes autism, or that environmental toxins cause autism. There are real lines of scientific inquiry looking at these, but there are not definitive treatment c conclusions 
in most of these areas. Okay, and so this is this is sort of how ripe the field is for these for these uh, dangerous and deadly cures. Is we're we're halfway there on some of these theories, and some folks are capitalizing and saying, "Well, leap of faith, leap of logic. Try this on your kid." And so there's some evidence, for example, that, that NAC therapy and vitamin B12 therapy may help. It's not definitive, okay? Uh, other therapy modalities that ride on these theories, such as um, chelation and hyperbaric oxygen, um, are not safe, okay? And so those are just a couple of examples from the oxidative stress and, and, and inflammation um, theories that, that are hijacked. All right. Down to my list. The top five most dangerous treatments for ASD and neurodevelopmental disorders. Um, you will see what these stand for if you don't know already as we go through a slide per each. Number one on my list is the Miracle Mineral Solution. Lucy loves this one. Uh, or MMS, a.k.a. chlorine dioxide CD or IKEA, may cause uh, immediate symptoms of esophageal burning when ingested. Uh, long-time GI issues uh, because guess what, folks? This is bleach, okay? And it's been out there for a long time. There are testimonials on the Internet, some of which are getting blocked now, which is good. Uh, there have been several kids sent to the ED who have taken this. Uh, various autism research institutes have come out with official, official statements against this. Um, when poison control is really the first person you should call for a therapy. It's not a therapy, okay? It's not a therapy. Um, but this, to me, is, is, is a prime example of just how desperate some folks have gotten and that they have, they have actually done this to their children. Number two, chelation therapy, okay? Now, this is based on a long-standing known environmental health fact that certain heavy metals are bad for our brains and our bodies, like lead. Lead's a classic example in pediatrics. Okay, we've done a huge public health service by banning and decreasing lead exposure. Okay, no doubt. Okay, but that doesn't mean that we should use chelation therapy and try to leach heavy metals out of every kid with autism's blood. Okay, because this can cause problems such as hypocalcemia, which can cause cardiac arrest. This can cause problems like renal damage, which can get kids on dialysis. Um, and, uh, you know, even, even at Cochrane, they took a look at this. They're famous for their, for their meta-analyses and looking at different therapies. And they're like, there's just no evidence of efficacy. There have been trials, okay? Um, Over-the-counter treatments, the FDA has come out and said these are dangerous and illegal. And they risk kidney damage, dehydration, and even sudden cardiac death in kids. So not a big fan of chelation therapy. How many folks out there have had patients who've done it? Yeah, look, that's a lot. Okay, that's a lot. Okay. Um, and so uh, the Goldwassers are going to do a bit at the end, and they're going to talk about how we take a history, I think, a little bit with families. And the, it's really important to ask families what they've done and what they're considering, okay? Uh, because having that, that sacred trust of like, you know, I'm not gonna judge you, I just wanna try to help you and support you um, as a clinician is, is the very least we can do for patients. 
All right, moving on to some of this dangerous stuff. Hyperbaric oxygen. How many folks have had patients do this? Okay, this is another therapeutic modality that's based in something that does actually help you. Okay, for those of you who scuba dive, you're well aware of the risk of the bins. This is great therapy for that. There are other protocols for which hyperbaric oxygen's been used, and there's some evidence that suggests that it has created some benefit for folks. Unfortunately, autism is not one of them. Okay? There are reports of kids getting their ears blown out from the pressure changes in hyperbaric uh, therapies. There's a risk of, obviously, uh, you know, fire. Okay? It's a huge fire hazard. Okay? It's also a huge financial cost. Okay? Some docs, some folks have these you know, as, their side, as their side gig <laughs> to make money. <laughs> sort of like my Father-in-law neurologist used to have an MRI. And so, you know, antitrust laws were written for that. Okay. Um, and so the Association for Science and the Treatment of Autism have concluded uh, that the preponderance of evidence suggests that this is not safe. Okay. Mark Del Monte would say the way I just said that was inappropriate. I should just say, don't put children in hyperbaric oxygen chambers with autism. It doesn't work, and it's probably going to freak them out. The next one. This is one I learned about I hadn't heard of. I'd heard of the others. I hadn't heard of this one. Lupron therapy or chemical castration. Anybody, ha anybody know that their patient has tried this? Okay, good. I've heard of it now. This comes from the philosophy that, well, since so many boys get autism, it's the boyness that's wrong. Let's fix that. Uh, and the father-son treatment team that's we're on a 20-year 20 20 long run of doing this uh, have had their license stripped in several states. And so I don't throw this out there as an example of something that you're likely to come across, but just keep in mind um, that this is an example of how long something that is blatantly dangerous, you know, and may mean of a child... Uh, how long it could go on and kind of be under the radar, right? For those of you who are MDs and get the, the, the licensure email updates from the Medical Board of California, if, you ever, if you're ever really bored and you're really caught up on your notes and you read some of the stories <laughs> of, of, of folks in medicine who have done wrong by our, you know, first do no harm um, edict, um, skip, they skip states, <laughs> They, they, they run from the law, and it takes a long time for the law to catch up. And so we're kind of also part of the law. If you, hear, if you hear something, say something. Okay. And lastly, stem cell therapy. Anybody out there have a patient who's done stem cell therapy for their autism? Yeah, there would be a few hands. I've had three or four now. One went international. Those are the ones that are most dangerous. The other one, the other couple did them nationally at a very prominent institution on, in the southeast um, that has a protocol, and it's for a self-stem cell, so it's placental cell. So not as dangerous necessarily with rejection and all that, um, but um, there are folks um, outside the U.S. who have been doing this and making a lot of money off of desperate families, and it's pretty risky. It's pretty risky stuff. Um, and if somebody can figure out how to do this to really get at the pathophysiology of autism, that'll be great. 
but it hasn't been done yet. And so asking families, especially some of, some of the more affluent families who have access to possibly doing this, asking them if they're thinking about this, I think is important because if they've got resources, let's use them in an appropriate way. Okay, can do a lot more good for their, for their kiddos. All right, so those are the top five. Um, and now why do I list Andrew therapy or allopathic medicine now not on my list? Well, this is the, hum- this is the humility part. Traditional Western medicine with our biological and scientific basis requiring proof of efficacy and, and safety uh, you know, with the FDA's backing uh, is supposed to be safe, right? Is it always safe? It's not always safe. Okay. Why is it not always safe? Well, my wife, the surgeon, says if you haven't had a complication, you haven't done enough surgery. And sometimes I teach the residents, if you haven't seen side effects, you haven't prescribed very much medicine. Okay. There are side effects. It is a sad fact of life. And when things are tested preliminarily with hundreds, you know, maybe a thousand individuals, that's not the same as the general population being exposed to that medication. Once the general population is exposed to that medicine for years, we start to see, holy cow, you know, there's a, there's a, a lot more to this medicine from a side effect standpoint than we knew. Now, I'm not going to blame America's obesity epidemic on atypical antipsychotics like the food and soda industry does. <laughs> it's kind of a cop-out, right? But I am going to say that, you know, those of us who do sometimes prescribe these medicines for kids who are really suffering and whose families are really suffering know that we've got to be super careful, okay? If, if a child's not gaining a lot of weight <laughs> on Risperidone or Abilify, I'm wondering if they're taking the medicine almost. I'm like, whoa, okay, that's great. But, you know, I'm used to seeing them gain a lot of weight, and getting the labs is really important. So what does work? How can we change the conversation from, I know you're really scared for your child with this diagnosis, and here are some things that are actually safe and useful to do, as opposed to, wow, don't do that. Okay. What works is interdisciplinary work. Okay. People coming to the table who are speech therapists, occupational therapists, physical therapists, cognitive behavioral therapists, other behavioral therapists, along with the MDs and the MPs and the PAs, uh, and especially the RNs out there who are making the biggest impact um, for, for our patients and families. There's actually a strong evidence base that interdisciplinary care works for patients with autism and other neurodevelopmental disabilities. And integrative medicine, CAM again, okay? Given that allopathia doesn't have much to offer in terms of cure, uh, a lot of families, the vast majority of families surveyed, have tried one or more alternative, formerly called alternative, now we call it integrative, I think that's uh, it's a better term, um, methods, okay? And often these are directed at the comorbid challenges, so irritability, hyperactivity, sleep problems, that's huge, gastrointestinal symptoms. These are the things that can make a huge difference in the quality of life for children and families with neurodevelopmental disabilities. And there are relatively safe, relatively cheap things that help families. Um, And I think we should, you know, give families back control and let them do these things um, in a safe and effective way. 
in my experience, families who are given a diagnosis that they, that they realize can be lifelong and chronic feel like they've had something taken from them and they want to have control back to help their child to be the parent that they want it to be. And when you say, okay, yeah, there's a lot of stuff you can do that's going to help your child. Let's talk about those, those, those things that we know are safe that might make a little bit of difference each individually, but cumulatively can make a big difference. Okay. Let's talk about those things. And please tell me what you've tried. Okay. You're more likely to hear if they're starting to flirt with the idea of doing chelation or something like that. You're like, wait, wait, okay, let's talk about that. Okay. These include nutrition, supplements, mind-body therapies, lots of good stuff. Okay. I'm not going to go into detail of that, but the idea is there is an antidote for the consideration of doing things that we know are dangerous, other things that are probably pretty darn safe. That's it. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.